Welcome to Real Nerds Podcast, unofficially the official podcast at Denver Comic Con 2014 and beyond. Sit back and relax because you're about to listen to some exclusive interviews from Mile High Horror Fest 2013. Enjoy. Welcome to Real Nerds Podcast at Mile High Horror 2013. We are with our friend, our buddy, Jonathan Tiersten. Hey, buddy, what's up? Uh, I am incredibly happy to be here because I love the Mile High Horror Film Festival because it's my... Uh, my two favorite times of the year are when I get to do Starfest in uh, in Denver and Mile High Horror Film Festival because they both take place in my home. So <laughs> I know it's so cool. Um, you know, you were on here last year at the same time, and since last year we have watched The Perfect House, <laughs> um, and we also and Sleepaway Camp, and we are at your thirtieth anniversary of Sleepaway Camp. Well, you guys, like last year, it was funny when you. Uh, interviewed me you had no idea who i was i just sort of walked up and i went hey you want to talk to me well hold on <laughs> hold on, on. Hold you're on. the lead you walked up and you said hey do you recognize me what if i was wearing really short jean shorts That's then true. would you recognize me <laughs> we were like no i don't want to see that no no that's because you were denying that you were ever at that club <laughs> <laughs> but i uh, know it's it's been it's been awesome yeah. uh you know the Perfect House, we can talk about it now because I finally saw it yeah, um, after fun. you were generous and gave us a copy. And then we talked to the director, Chris, who sent us six copies to give away on our podcast. Wow. Yeah. Because yeah. he loved the, he loved the review I wrote. And I was like, oh, that's so nice, sir. Um, so now I can really talk about it. John Dozy is a horrible person. <laughs> um, and you're such a nice guy, Jonathan. How do you get to that place where you're just an asshole? Well, what I think about John Dozy, and people have asked me about that, you know, how do you get to that dark place in your psyche? I think we all have it. Um, for me, it's just pretty readily accessible. <laughs> um, and John Dozy is, you know, he's inside of me somewhere. And as an actor, you always have to work from the inside out. So getting to John Dozy wasn't really that hard. It was uh, pulling it back to make it interesting was hard. And showing uh, the, the rationale that John Dozy has. Because John Dozy does not think of himself as evil mm. or mean at all. And, uh, and that's, I think to me, that's truly what horror is. And do you think, um, do you think his evil ways were exacerbated by being in that basement? Because the basement in the movie is basically the root of evil or do you think he was just inherently evil and it just made him bring it out more i i, I don't uh well you know the the um the origins of the house i don't even know that's all in chris holbert's uh mind for me all i could worry about was who john dozy was and j to me john dozy was somebody where something happened you know in his childhood that was terrible uh, he probably was born with a kind of screwed up DNA, but something happened in his childhood that set him on this path. And I think repeated failures. Um, and that's sort of what we're going to get at in uh, the John Dozy story, which is, you know, the full length prequel that's, uh, that's planned. And I just think I, he just, to me, he found his niche. Hmm. And that's how he manage to cope as we all do we all find our things that we use to 
managed to get by daily. And for John Dozy, it was, you know, come home from work, torture somebody, rape somebody, uh, and then go back to work, feel like shit, come back, rape, torture, and do it again. Rinse, repeat. So <laughs> your performance in it, though, is so good because you have this... Uh, this charm and I mean uh, I'm going to hit on you I mean you're a good looking guy and uh, <laughs> but for someone to be that dark I think plays against type and was that uh, obviously it was part of the plan it, well I don't character. know I don't know that it was initially it's funny because the director you know Chris Holbert uh, initially uh, I was recommended by Felissa Rose and he said well he doesn't seem very menacing um I see pictures of him with his seven-year-old child. <laughs> He's always smiling, and uh, he, uh, you know, he, it, his music sounds kind of uplifting and blah, blah, blah. And he said, to his credit, that, and I remember when I got on the phone with him, I was like, am I supposed to sound menacing when I get on the phone? And to his credit, I just said, no, you know what, I'm just going to be me. And we'll start a conversation. And he said within 30 seconds, he knew that I was John Dozy. And I think that goes back to, you know, the, I, I'm in touch with that. I, I, get, I get it. And I think being aware of it, it, it is what enables me to be nice and funny and open to people. And because I think those, those two things run very parallel and I don't know if uh, a lot of people believe that and I don't really care um, <laughs> but it's for me it was initially that was the daunting task was like well where, where is that rage inside me and I was like wait a minute I've been an actor I'm like and a musician my other rage is all over the place I've been turned down by you know people of half my intelligence for years and I get his frustration. I totally got it. And so, uh, yeah, the dark part of Dozy was easy. And you have these amazing monologues throughout the film where you kind of just build to who you are as an evil person. Um, and when you hear those, it seems so natural, but it, it's it's haunting how you know you say I'm one man thinning out the herd and. You're just constantly building up those moments. Uh, is, is that a, a natural choice for you when you read it, or is it something you practiced a lot to get to that moment? No, I never practiced it. Um, in fact, I, uh, I had a conversation with the actor, uh, what's his name? I think Michael Noonan, who played uh, the villain in the first um, Hannibal Lecter movie that mm -hmm. Michael Mann did, Red Dragon. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said he's never... I. I contacted him through Facebook because he was in a New York Times article about damages, and he said, I don't like to remember my lines very well. I don't like to rehearse my lines. And that doesn't mean that you're not focusing on the character. You're, you're rehearsing. You're, you're getting into the character. For me, the lines weren't the thing. And if I thought about having it consciously build, it wouldn't have worked. So I kind of took a page out of uh, De Niro's book in Taxi Driver, where he was playing a monkey I don't know if you know that but in Taxi Driver he was playing a monkey and if you go look back at it it's quite apparent and for me it was a mosquito and so just the physicality of that like sort of the way I'm 
very specific about going from one cage to the other, then the lines were easy. They just came, like, slowly and progressively, and then they just got angrier and angrier. And the, it was like almost like the longer the, the passage was, the more enraged I got because I was hearing the words in my head. And as I'm saying this to you guys right now, I'm getting like, <laughs> I just, you know, it's, I understand his rage. I do. I totally understand. And I think everybody does because you know what? Before you go to sleep at night, what happens? All the shit in your day builds up like a freaking tidal wave and it's all shit. It's all made up. The whole thing. Dozy was trying to cut through the shit. And that's where I don't think he was evil, I think. I mean, obviously, he, what he was doing was a terrible, horrible thing. But he never looked at it as evil. And if I looked at John Dozy as evil, then I would have, I think, missed it entirely. And, too, I mean, he has... Uh, there, there's two moments that I, I point to about how strong the character is that you play. Um, one is the lady who comes to the house mm-hmm. and is looking for her daughter. And, I mean, <laughs> the way you... I, I, I know I'm kissing your ass because you're on my show, but I even wrote it in my review of the movie. The way you come to the door is, like, it's creepy to me. Like, it's scary because... And just the way you say, you know how... You see how big this house is? And, <laughs> it, and, and, and the other part, too, is when you deck that dude with the board... Because oh, that, isn't that awesome? Because like, it's one of those moments when you watch a horror <laughs> Doesn't movie. Doesn't everybody want to do yeah, that, though? You're like, oh, <laughs> shit! Because <laughs> like, at the same time, you I don't want to say you sympathize with Dozy, but you understand it's like, oh, I'm going to let him go. You, and then you actually, it's like when Dozy hits that guy, I think a lot of people are like, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> he was a whining, sniveling rodent of a human being. And yeah. God damn, that's awesome. <laughs> they still feel bad for the girl, but... Uh, the mom. What I do to the mom is the essence of a controlled killer. He went to the door focused. I don't think Dozy ever has a moment in his life when he's not probably at what is some really horrible job that he hates where he's belittled by people all the time. He doesn't have a moment in his house where it's not his show. And he walked up to that door ready and what he says to that woman is so to me that is the the absolute high point of the movie because it explains to you exactly who he is and he's so vicious and so controlled and so calm i it's 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 so awful i you know i i I, there's people in my life that i know who treated me that way and i and i uh i would never wish that on my worst enemy and i think that's that's more cruel than even the torture. He he psychologically uh, dismantles that woman. You know, it's awful. Yeah. Well, one of the things I think is actually the most interesting about that character, um, certainly by comparison to other like horror villains like that, um, is the fact that he keeps that woman in that cage for so long. And I mean, yes, he's torturing her and it's horrible, but there's also this sense that like. He wants somebody else to experience these things with him. Um, like it, it is this little window into his humanity. Was there was that built into the character for you? Was yeah. They, well, for you? what happens is, and that's Holly Green, the actress, mm-hmm. who is incredible. Um, what happens is, is that they become more or less equals. And even though she is his prisoner, uh, intellectually and psychologically, she battles him every step of the way. 
uh, you know, she has her moments where she's trying, you know, just saying, please let me go, please let me go. And then she snaps back into moments where she's manipulating him as much as he is her. And that's sort of like Tennessee Williams-esque stuff, you know. Uh, just... Uh, it proves that you can you can lock a person in a cage, but you can't lock their spirit. And she is still willing to battle him and, and go after him and and hurt him psychologically. And it's really intense. That And everybody said, you know, you guys must have known each other before that and blah, blah, blah. And, they, you know, even the director said it seemed like you guys knew each other from, like, the first scene. And I said, I said, we had a connection as actor and actress that was phenomenal. And uh, it's funny because we didn't talk at all off camera and now we've become very close friends but was that a conscious a conscious choice too that you didn't interact with the other actors as John Dozy because you didn't want to do it I I, no, I mean I break character when I get uh you know offset I I'm not gonna you know kind of try try and keep that intensity going the whole time but but it's lingering Mm -hmm. and uh so you know and our days were so long and so intense that you know it's mostly small talk Nothing, because I think it would be hard to come down from that. You know, because it just, was it was brutal. I mean, that scene you talked about, like the door, how you treat that person so horribly. I mean, I've grown to know you. You're not that person at all. So <laughs> that was the lightest day for me. Though, really, I was like, I get to go outside, almost go outside. You know, I was like, <laughs> you know, because we're filming those scenes in the basement, and you know, it's 35 people in a basement, and we're supposed to pretend that there's three of us. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's hot as hell, and uh, you know I remember that was the first thing where I thought to myself, my God, there's so many people down here. It's freaking hot. I'm dying. And uh, that scene, I was like, oh man, I get to like be upstairs, and uh, and poor Holly was you know locked in that cage for like ten hours at a time. Whew. Yeah, and uh, but i was a little frightened by how that scene uh came so easily <laughs> to me because i would liken it to like a jehovah's witness coming to your door <laughs> or or you know a couple of kids with the book of mormon or whatever and you're just like god freaking damn it you blew up my whole day for this and i remember thinking what if i was in the middle of writing a song you know like mm-hmm. and uh so i just uh i remember and, and the actress who played it just pissed me off too so i was like <laughs> uh, i wasn't gonna that, say like, anything she wasn't up to your level in the acting department she, well she was doing that like weepy thing yeah. and i was like god i'm gonna you want to weep <laughs> i'm gonna make you weep and uh that so it worked for me you know whether or not she was a good actress didn't really matter to me i was just pissed <laughs> so cool so so you're actively developing a prequel with john dozy as well, I'm character. not actively developing. Chris Holbert is, but uh, but he, uh, you know, I do get, uh, you know, I get I get to have input on script, and uh, and I certainly get to add to soundtrack. Cool, but I'm oh. sure most people that see it probably ask for a prequel with John Dozy. Would be my guess. Well, that's been the yeah, that's been the uh, the general consensus is that everybody goes, wow, that's that's the scene we want to see. Yeah, because it's always uh, scary when I'm given stuff and, you know, I have to review it. I'm like, oh, I just met this guy. Should I be nice? But then when it turns out great, I love it. And now we're going to go back 30 years, sir. 30 years to Sleepaway Camp. And, you know, it's the first time I saw this movie in a long time. 
And we had the privilege to seeing it with you at the Alamo Draft House where we're at on the big screen, which was amazing. Oh, how yeah. fun was that? Oh, my oh, gosh. Dude. It was so much fun. Um, and what really surprised me about it is how, well, I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but I'm still am, is how natural you were in that movie and uh, how much, I, I forgot how fun you were in the movie. You know, when I look back on it, it's uh, it was such a weird time in my life. Um you know, I after Sleepaway Camp, I had a, a bunch of near misses on very big projects, and I guess uh, I went, you know, and I went to NYU as an acting major the next year, and everybody was involved in the business, and I remember doing Sleepaway Camp and thinking, wow, this was easy, and thought the next thing would come along pretty soon on its heels, and when it didn't, that became very frustrating. And then I did uh, my after-school special, and I felt like my performance was really good in that, too. And that was, oh my gosh, six years later. And then nothing happened after that again. And then I started to question myself as an actor, and, uh, and I don't think I was really good at the audition process. I'm not that guy. I'm like, once you tell me I have the part and I'm secure with it, I'm good. But before that, I'm... I'm showing, and I'm pushing, and I'm, uh, you know, uh, creating certain, you know, uh, ideas of what the character is before I have any idea. And I've not, I guess I've never really understood the audition process, even to this day. I don't get it, because I'm like, unless you really know the character, what are you talking about? And, you know, I guess that's why people teach classes in auditioning, but uh, I, I, I hate auditioning, because... I'm like, how on earth, if you don't understand the context of the entire piece, how on earth can you have any idea what that character is about? But there are people who are really great at auditioning. It doesn't mean they're going to be really great in the part. And uh, so that was sort of what you know brought me to that catharsis uh, or epiphany in my life where I said, something's got to change. And did I hear you right uh, at the screening? You really didn't like the notoriety that came with Sleepaway Camp when it first came out, or uh... I, it wasn't when it first came out. I liked it because mm. um, I I thought I was going to get laid, <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't. Um, and then uh, as years went by, and I did my after school special, which. Uh, even when I filmed my after-school special, which was uh, I won a daytime Emmy, you know, and I always laugh because I'm like I'm like lightning in a bottle. I only work every so often, but when I do, something big happens. But I uh, I didn't tell anybody on the after-school special that I had been in Sleepaway Camp. Um, then many years later, uh, I was working as a musician, and I didn't tell people. And in fact, I would deny it. Um, not quite sure why. <laughs> Um, I think I had a lot of regrets, which was weird because I don't. But I think your your brain goes through, you know, all those. You know, and I watched a bunch of my friends get famous, and that was, uh, at the time, frustrating. Um, but it drove me to work harder on my music all the time. And I just, I didn't want to be known for just that one thing. It was so important to me not to be known for just that one thing, and... I think maybe uh, doing the perfect house sort of uh, released the pressure, hmm. you know, for all of that. And and 
now I embrace the sleepaway camp thing, you know, like a like a child, I guess. And uh, it's nice. It's, yeah. I'm not upset, and I'm not upset when people recognize me for it. And but I was not that guy for a long time. So I mean. But at the same time, it has to be rewarding now when you come to the Alamo Draft House. I have a 30th screening, and there's 100 people in the theater, and they all laugh when you do lines from it, and they all really enjoy the film. I mean, what, what is that like uh, 30 years later, knowing how people enjoy the film? It's fun, but, I mean, for me, I'm just an entertaining guy anyway. I'm like, if you gave me a choice, you know, if you gave me a microphone and put me in front of, uh, you know, uh, uh, like say, I'm looking at a screen, The Wolfman. You know, I would make jokes in front of that, like Mystery Science Theater, and I'd have that crowd roiling as well. And so uh, I don't really look at it specifically as it as because it's sleepaway camp. I, mm-hmm. I, you know, I I'm so distanced from it at this point that I'm that I can almost watch it like a fan because mm. it's really funny. I mean, I think it's a really funny and and it clever is. movie, and uh, and I understand why it has such amazing staying power because it's so confusing and bizarre. <laughs> Uh, you know, and as I always tell people, it's, you know, funnier than meatballs and uh, scarier than Friday the 13th. So that's and, you know, as the years go by, it, 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 you know, catches up to them. And I think eventually it will surpass them. And uh, and that's crazy. And it's interesting, too, because um, I, I I go to horror websites all the time and I go to Shout Factory who do great jobs with. Uh, you know, lesser-known horror movies or even big ones and re-releasing them. And I'm not even joking, sir. I was looking at the comments. I said, we're releasing two movies in 2014. Which ones do you want? I'd say every five comments was Sleepaway Camp. Every, everyone's, like, clamoring for uh, a Blu-ray of this. Well, I've talked to... Uh, uh, what's his name? Martin Jr., uh, but who does that? He, you know... But I'm not the guy who owns the rights to Sleepaway Camp, and Sleepaway Camp has, um, you know, the Robert Hiltzik has been very proprietary with it, which is why I think that uh, this is this uh, groundswell has been so slow, uh, sort of like the economic recovery. Um, <laughs> and it's he just he, you know, like you can't get it on a download at Netflix. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of stuff the going sequels. on. Yeah, well, and they play them all the time on TV. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, not that I've seen them, but they, it's just weird. You know, they 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 protect the thing like it's in some kind of vault. And do you think that's um, on purpose. I think so. Yeah, I do. Um, I don't know why. I don't know what the strategy is behind it. But if you ever meet Robert Hiltzik, uh you would understand why that you would never know because. The man has a poker face from hell, and <laughs> he and I have always had a complicated relationship. And uh, but I don't, uh, you know, it's not my production. It's I was just an actor in the movie, and so whatever he chooses to do with it, you know, uh, you know, it's been working so far. So I, you know, I would be very surprised if it didn't come out within the next year or two in Blu-ray. I'd be very surprised. You know, it's funny, too. When we were uh, watching it on the big screen, you, you said one of the most questions you're asked are, is that your hand killing people in the movie? And you even said it on when you saw it on the big screen and you came in the door, you could totally tell it was you. And I don't know if it's because it was Isn't so... is weird? My hands look the same. It's I very strange. <laughs> I don't know if it's because it's so clear or the picture no, is so I have gray. a mole right there on my, you know, the by my thumb. And so, you know, it's just so obviously. I mean, 
the, the the leaps of faith you have to take in sleepaway camp are so are so enormous. They're like the Dalai Lama, you know, uh, putting. I mean, uh, driving with Bill Murray and Caddyshack. You know, he goes over a ten thousand foot crevice. Big hitter, the Lama, um, and he, you know. It's so obvious that it's not her hands because I am this like veiny nightmare, <laughs> and uh, and and Felissa is also so obviously female. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like she's gorgeous. How are you possibly going to think she's a boy? And yet everybody buys into it at the end. And I remember when we filmed it, I'm like, nobody is going to buy into that. That's <laughs> impossible. I'm like. Then again, we were dating, but you know. <laughs> but I thought about it, and I was like, "There's no way," because I was looking at her in person, and she's like, you know, even at, at 14 or 13, she was stunning, you know, and she still is. And I was like, "There's no," I'm like, I, "There, there ain't no damn transvestite in the world that looked that good," you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and uh, maybe there is, but I haven't met her yet. Uh, but she was, I mean, her facial structure everything you know just so pretty and it but they did that on purpose they pur- purposely cast somebody who looked ultimately feminine and it worked you know and then the crying game stole it you know so. <laughs> and also too what i think's really lost in the movie because of the ending is how great the relationship between you two is in the movie because you know it starts off as ricky's just trying to protect his cousin and it, it, in a way, it's kind of cute and heartbreaking at, at, in the end. You well, know? it's about bullying, and and I, you know, I've read so many reviews over the years where they're like, oh, you, you know, you can throw away the first eighty-five minutes of the movie, and I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm like, if it were all about the ending, you would never, you wouldn't be watching it a hundred times. Yeah, yeah I okay. Agree. I mean, people watch it over and over and over, and even more than the sort of twisted homoerotic weirdness that goes on. Really what it's about is camp, and it's about, uh, you know, a relationship between two cousins slash brother-sister, you know, who have a tremendous bond, you know, that is, like, at that age, fairly unusual. And, uh, you know, and, and Ricky takes an enormous responsibility because he, he realizes that, first of all, his mother's batshit crazy, um, and, you know, and Angela is really... Uh, subdued and he feels that it's his you know he believes blood is thicker than water and Ricky's like you are not going to mess with my cousin I don't care what you do you know they can beat up Paul they can't touch Angela and I and I love that about the movie it's sort of, it's almost like a Godfather-esque you know thing where Michael talking to Fredo you know I mean you never do anything against the family but he really believed it and I believed it at the time and I think you're right, too, because I don't think people would watch it if the relationships weren't so strong. Because even Angela, throughout the course, the, the, the what's the name of the boy who she starts dating? I Paul. Paul, yeah, starts bringing out who he, she is throughout the movie. <laughs> and she starts becoming this really uh, cute, delicate, like, flower. And you're like, oh, she's so cute. And then when people start attacking her, and then Ricky shows up, and she's like, yeah, fuck you, come down off that thing. It's it's just like the opposite. Yeah, of but they don't the have it. It's weird. What I like about it is that you know, there's no confusion. It's not like Ricky has like a physical attraction to her at all. No. It is it is brother and sister deal. You know, Ricky is perfectly okay with Paul being with Angela. And in fact, if you notice in the movie, Ricky, you know, never gets mad at Paul ever. Mm-hmm. Even though you know he probably knew what happened. In fact, he saw it with Judy. You know, and he's not mad at Paul. Mm-hmm. He's mad at Judy. Uh, so I guess 
there's a little misogyny in there, but <laughs> um, but yeah, Ricky is just that's his. He feels like that's his job. Just take care of Angela because you know she lives in Crazyville, and then he takes her to Lord of the Flies, and so uh, <laughs> it it's you know you know it's from uh, out of the uh, frying pan into the fire, and what do you you know? I mean, but he's learned to handle it because he's you know he's just that guy. He just he is. The way he reacts to stress is to explode, and he's the antithesis of John Dozy, which I think is funny. But <laughs> and uh, d- he does he survive the beating the old man gives him? Yeah, they go, they go. He's alive. <laughs> yeah, so, he's like I didn't hit him back. <laughs> uh, so now we can transition to you. You you stopped acting for a while, but then you made some really great music. That uh, I've been listening to, that I enjoy, and uh, talk to, to us a little bit about your music career. And were you always a musician at heart, and then you finally just had an outlet when you stopped acting? Or uh, well, I mean, there was sort of a—I uh, I guess there was a, a gentle transition when I graduated from New York University, um, and and when I had, you know, I started playing music when I was about twenty-two. Um, but I grew up playing classical music on French horn, and uh, I started playing out because a friend of mine sort of pushed me to do it. And we would drive all over the place, my gosh, all the way down to Princeton, New Jersey, uh, just to play an open stage. And then I started playing weekly at a place called the Cheyenne Social Club in Manhattan, which was right next to the public theater um, on Lafayette Street. And we played there every week, and that became interesting. And we were, you know, becoming part of that scene with uh, blues travelers, spin doctors. Um, we were never as big as them. Don't get me wrong. Um, and but I realized it was like, it, you know, I was like, oh my, I felt freed. And uh, when I was twenty-five, I, I I did a mini tour out in Colorado. Came back home. And uh, two months later, I moved out here, and I never looked back. I didn't tell my agent. Um, I didn't tell my manager. I didn't tell a lot of my friends. Uh, I'm not sure I told everybody in my family. And I had gotten to a point where I just... I was so disenfranchised with the whole idea of getting famous that I was like, I would be perfectly fine with just... You know, playing 15 shows a month and living subsistently. And, oh, boy, did I do that for a long time. <laughs> Holy crap. Um, but it was, you know, there were years in the midst of it where I was like, what the hell did I do? Um, but I'm, I'm, you know, it all ended up great. And, and, and it made me a great, a much better musician, you know. And I, I mean, I will elaborate on that because from your first CD, which is good, to Don's Club Tavern, which is stunning. I mean, I remember you telling me about how hard you worked on it, and I mean, you can hear it in um, the growth as you as a mus- musician. Um, not uh, your first album's good, but I mean, uh, to me, I think your best album is Don's Club Tavern. Yeah, I love that album, and I it's really just because it, it's it's personal and it's deep, but it's also kind of light, and right. I, I, I love. I love the folk folkiness to it, but also I, I you do you describe the album to well, just I mean, because I, I think you know, you're a lot I, better. At I it. always liken it back to you know I I go to old time rock and roll for me because people used to be able to make an eclectic album and it wasn't a big deal and now everybody is apparently supposed to be pigeonholed in one style 
Uh, you know, I mean, Elton John made made songs that were incredibly rocking, and then did songs that were a solo piano piece, or David Bowie, or uh, you know, even going far back as the Beatles or the Stones. It just, or even Zeppelin. You know, I mean, Zeppelin had acoustic, solo acoustic pieces on on their albums, and you know, now to to do something like hard and then do something folky is like thought uh, like no, you can't do that. And for me, that's the music I grew up with. And, you know, or I even, uh, I watched uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash on their um, most recent tour, which is in 2012. <laughs> and, 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 you know, Stephen Stills was absolutely, <laughs> absolutely shredding the electric guitar. I mean, mm-hmm. like, like tearing it a new butt. And it was amazing, you know, and he's, you know, pushing 70, and, and I was like, that's what rock and roll used to be, so what is, I mean, anybody who doesn't know that band would think they're a folk band, mm-hmm. um, except the guy can absolutely rip, and so for me, I just write what comes to mind, and if you can, you know, somehow uh, create a cohesiveness in an album, that's awesome, that's the, that's the idea, it doesn't mean that every song has to be of a similar genre or whatever they want to call it and I think that's you know what I'm so excited about and the thing I must did I did most recently was uh, uh, I did a cover of uh, Love is Strange the old Mickey and Sylvia song from 1956 yeah. which was made famous uh, in Dirty Dancing again mm-hmm. in the and I did it for the new Plan 9 movie, which is a remake of Plan 9 from Outer Space. You know, widely known as the worst movie ever made by Ed It's a Wood. lie. It's a lie. <laughs> this is the best movie he ever made. Okay. Well, and I, so I did the cover, and I played it for um, uh, Tim, Timothy Quill today and Tiff, uh, Tiffany Shepis, and uh, they both immediately want to license it in different projects that they're doing. And I did the whole thing from soup to nuts, you know, myself. I played all the instruments and uh, brought a little modern slant to it. I just, I love, that's my favorite thing is to create something, you know, uh, with my my own vision in it. And so for me, and playing live, you know, I mean, all of it. And so to be able to sort of meld these two careers is that I'm just a lucky guy, I guess, you know. And for those who are listening and like, oh, what's Jonathan Tiersten like live? I'll tell you a story about Jonathan Tiersten that I like <laughs> live. So we went to Starfest this year, and uh, Jonathan's on there, and he's rocking. He's totally tearing it up. And then I'm looking at him, and he's doing this, and I see blood just flying everywhere. And, I'm, and I look at James, and I'm like, he cut his finger on his guitar and not only did you not stop i think you played six more songs after that mm-hmm. and and you just talked about losing yourself in the music Obviously well, i finally stopped because my strings were so sticky i couldn't <laughs> i was having trouble uh getting my fingers off of the strings and and I, the same thing happened if you look at my guitar now i just did it in new orleans the other day and uh and i was like i don't even remember bleeding there that was weird do you lose yourself so much that you don't even know that you hurt yourself while you're oh playing? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, when I, uh, you know, I think for, for anybody who's seen me play, you know, I I really, I mean, my favorite, like, performers, I mean, I love watching Bono. Uh, I love watching, um, uh, you know, old Jim Morrison. I love watching, um, you know, just guys that, you know, Bowie, I like guys that just completely lose themselves in the moment. And for me, as somebody who was trained as an actor, to be able to, you know, not have lines 
is so awesome, and I just love to just completely. I mean, it's it's so freeing, and you know, granted, afterwards it may hurt a little, um, but it's yeah, it's. I mean, it's my favorite thing, and I mean, if I could afford to, I'd probably smash a couple guitars, but um, <laughs> but I can't. And I just, I mean, I the thing that makes me crazy is I'm like, if you're not that guy, fine, play the way you play. But the guys who fake it make me nuts. Oh, you know who my favorite is, without question, Beyond the Pale, who still to this day loses it, is Pete Townsend. Because you can see it. He's he just when he starts bouncing on that stage, he's out of his mind. He is like possessed by some kind of altered consciousness and. That to me is that's true bliss. And two, um, I, I've I've read some musicians who play guitars don't like playing guitars live because they feel it, it hinders their uh, performance. Uh, but for some reason, that elevates yours. Well, Do you, I, uh, it reminds me of another guitar player who I adore, which is uh, Neil Young. I mean, yeah, the the energy of the audience absolutely pumps me up, it, and uh, I just love it. You know, and uh, so I mean, yeah, maybe you're not hitting every uh, note as precisely as you would on the recording. Angus Young talks about that too, you know, um, and he's like, because when he when he records the ACDC albums, he actually sits in a chair. Really? Yeah, which I think is I, I can't even picture that. Yeah, he sits in a chair and just plays it, and he goes, "But when it's a show, it's a show," <laughs> and he doesn't, you know, at this point, even after practice, running at full tilt and hitting the best damn blues riffs you've ever heard, you know. And that to me is, you know, I've, I've had moments where I'm on stage where you start to become aware of yourself. That's the worst feeling in the world. <laughs> um, I, you know, it's when I let it go, much like acting, same thing. You know, that's when it's interesting. And, uh, if you know, if people want to think that I'm, I'm uh, playing to the audience, well, great. Uh, you know, they can think whatever they want to think. Um, but I do feed off the energy of the audience. You know, it's a cooperative. It's it's for me. It's for them. It's for you know. It's uh, you know. Uh, do you want to feel good now, right now? Well, then let's do this. You know, I just love that. That's why I love it when like I've done shows where they put makeup on me and white face and stuff, and I just know it's there even though I can't see it. And I'm like, this is gonna be so great. You know. <laughs> So yeah, I just uh, for me it's it's awesome. It's rock and roll, man. I mean, what the hell? That's awesome. What's the problem with rock and roll? Absolutely nothing. So you were in New Orleans. How was New Orleans for you? I almost died. Um, <laughs> Wait, how, how did you almost die? Oh, uh, I had a little blood sugar sex magic moment at the end of it, uh, <laughs> where I was just uh, my heart started pounding and all this stuff, and I ended up in the hospital. But. No, Before what? that, no, it's a long story. <laughs> it's not that important. Okay. Um, but uh, for the most part, the trip was absolutely spectacular. J.T. Seaton, uh, uh, Blake, um, I'm trying to remember Blake's, field, Blake's last name now. I can't remember it. But uh, these guys were fantastic. I was there with Ken Ferre. Uh, I got to play the opening show at the Cafe Istanbul, and that was amazing. And, you know, it's New Orleans. Those people never stop. Uh, it's hot as hell. It's wet as hell. And, uh, but they have a really, those people have a tremendously, you know, warm attitude. And, and 
Uh, they're, they're just fun to be around, and the film festival went fantastically. I saw a great movie called Jake's Road um, with Eric Roberts, and uh, met a bunch of the actors from that, and just in general just met amazing people and had a, had a phenomenal time and you know got stuck in some of the culture of that ridiculously bizarre <laughs> uh, troubled yet amazing city isn't it crazy like you're on Bourbon Street and uh, I was there uh, six months after Katrina and I was on Bourbon Street, and everyone was still having fun. And then you oh, yeah. take a step to the river, and they have all this historical stuff. And you're, you're <laughs> like, wait a minute. I, I, I'm reading about the War of 1812, and they're drinking and passing out in the street while listening to jazz yeah, music. Well, I mean, I, I think the locals look at uh, Bourbon Street as sort of an aberration of, you know, it's like that's where the tourists go. It's sort of like Times Square for New Yorkers, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's such a beautiful place. It is. And, you know, the... I was listening to these young jazz musicians in their in their early twenties, and they they rocked my world. Uh, I was like, "Wow, I I can't imagine." And you know, they'll probably never be rich or anything like that, but they were all smiling and happy as hell. And I think that's what that city is. Somebody said, "You know, it's a land of hangovers and memories." And uh, so that about that about sums it up. <laughs> And uh, one of the bartenders, I said, he said, I just stay living here because I never want to grow up. Hmm. You know, it's Toys R Us for adults. (laughs) It really is. It really is. And I mean, even uh, St. Charles is so beautiful. And and then you drive like a mile and it just drops off. Well, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, New Orleans is, uh, you know, it was it was even, you know, more bizarre before Katrina because, you Hmm. know, a lot of the very poor people got forced out and. Uh, you know, you used to have the projects like right behind a mansion, you know, yeah. and their projects made, you know, New York City's projects look like the Hilton. <laughs> um, they were almost clapboard, you know, and uh, there was such a disparity of wealth that almost looked like a third world country. And, you know, every city has their, you know, warts, but it's still an amazing place. I hope <laughs> it I hope it doesn't get washed away again. It is below sea level. It's uh, there's a problem. Uh, and. I talked to the guy at the bed and breakfast, and he said, well, you know, when originally they settled, they said they built a lot of this stuff right along the shoreline, which is actually the safest stuff because it's, it's built up high. Mm. And then they built stuff, and then there's a valley, and then it goes up, and then they built stuff there. And then when it became a popular tourist town, they started building everything in between. Mm. And that's all the stuff that got wrecked. And uh, mm-hmm. so, you know. We live and learn, don't we? We do. What are we? What are you up to right now, Jonathan? I have uh, a new movie coming out called Redemption um, that I did with George Loros from The Sopranos and Meredith Ostrom, um, who was in Love Actually and was actually the common law wife of uh, Nick Rhodes from uh, Duran Duran for s- seven <laughs> years, <laughs> which was interesting because they had just broken up when I met. But. Uh, um, and that's going to start doing the festival circuit. Uh, I've also been talking with Brian Witten, who produced The Wedding Singer, Chernobyl Diaries, uh, more recently the um, new John Cusack movie that's going to be Stephen King's The Cell, uh, about producing, and not just not acting, producing. It's a good book. I heard. And, uh, and then I talked to um, Tom Vandell at Radar Pictures, who... Um, Actually, it's funny. He just—they just signed Dan Myrick um, 
to a deal, but and they just did the new Riddick movie. Oh, that's right. Yeah, and Tom and I talked for a long time, and he said, you have a certain gift to uh, bringing people together, so I think uh, producing is a, a sort of natural progression for you. And uh, I'm laughing because people are like, you know, my trainer at the gym said, is it normal for actors to be talking to, like, big Hollywood moguls? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then later that day, I got a call from Jeffrey Reddick, uh, creator of Final Destination, and I, and I related the story to him, and Jeffrey, I t- and Jeffrey said, no, just you, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, I mean, I want to do that. It doesn't, uh, I'm not sure it puts a fire in my belly like some of the other things I do, but... Uh, you know, we'll see. Maybe it will. Maybe I'll get excited about it once I get involved in a project that I find to be, you know, really amazing. And I mean, if I could have any effect on making some Hollywood movies better, that wouldn't suck. <laughs> Not at <laughs> all. I get so disappointed too often. And uh, I, you know, I would have to answer to you guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'm going to reveal something exclusive here on this podcast. Uh-oh. Something exclusive. He's revealing something. It is. Jonathan Tiersten has agreed to be on Real Nerds Pod Show, Episode 5, which we will film in a couple weeks <laughs> at his house. My in, backyard. In Fort Collins and in your basement. If you have a basement. You, do, you have a basement, you. right? We already wrote the script. I hope you have a basement. Of course I got a basement. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, what's so cool about Jonathan is when we talked to him at the sleepaway camp thing, I, I was nervous to ask him, even though I know how cool you are. And I says, oh, man, is he going to say yes? And he says, yeah, dude, I'll do it. Just send it to me. And he's so cool. And uh, we, we, I asked him, I said, well, we want to take your, yourself to an extreme. And what did you want us to do for you? And he says, well, make me really gay. So, um, <laughs> so uh I'll not t- that extreme. Uh, we're gonna. Uh, so, for our listeners out there, here's the fabulous, premise. but not that extreme. Here's the premise of the episode, and Jonathan only knows a little bit of this. Um, the episode title is "Human Barbecue" at Jonathan Tiersten's. Um, I'm big into the barbecue. You guys know. Sweet. That. Are you really? Oh my god! Well, yeah. it's, gotta, it's meant to be. I got a freaking uh, you know uh, Weber Genesis. Like, cool. Can I fit in it? Because. <laughs> Okay, the, the premise of this episode is I get an invitation. It only works if we cook with the top down. <laughs> <laughs> to Must have high house. heat. <laughs> and uh, so I get an invitation to Jonathan's house, but I don't read the fine print. And uh, it's in the title, Human Barbecue at Jonathan Tiersten's. Um, so thank you so much for... Not just for breakfast anymore. <laughs> <laughs> for agreeing to do that. It means the world to us. It's gonna be oh, really are you cool. kidding? It's going to be That's my so pleasure. Exciting. And... Uh, and the beauty is, is that you guys will actually get to eat some of my barbecue while you're there. Like, oh, you know, what? Yeah, it's not human. Um, <laughs> it is grass-fed beef, but, uh, you know. Cool. So what can we bring to your house when we come up? Well, if you want, honestly, one of my new things that I'm really getting into is ribs. Okay. Um, we can do that. you got to get the loin, though, because they're meaty. Mm. But I love doing ribs because, you know, we'll, it'll take a while, but... But yeah, we have, but we're we have to film, right? Hell, yeah, right? so we'll bring them in the so morning. So we'll have that wonderful smell of the mesquite chips and stuff while we're, uh, and, which and, is like such an amazing smell. And, yep. You know, the only thing we're going to have to deal with is my seven-year-old running around, <laughs> running <laughs> around right. going, I need a cameo. That's I fine. need a cameo. He All asked right. me if I could be, if he could be in my, because uh, I'm the guys from uh, Plan 9 uh, said that a lot of the bands didn't quite cut the... Uh, muster uh so they sent me another song <laughs> i said oh goody 
Another obsession. Um, <laughs> and uh, he said to me, can I be on the recording? And I said, you bet your ever-loving ass you can be on that recording. So he's going to be doing a cameo on your thing somehow. Sweet. Enough. And then you're going to be arrested for child exploitation. Which Probably. Is, yeah, which is, that's okay, though, because I'll just kill whoever shows up. So. All right. No worries. Yeah. In, the, in, the, in the murder basement. Yeah. yeah in the murder yeah. basement. Well, the murder basement looks pretty similar to the other. Sweet. Although we've, we've, we've upgraded my studio, so it's now soundproof. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, doesn't that make you movie. excited? Why don't you yeah. come down to the basement? It's soundproof. Yeah, no, yeah, that's, that's you, know, you gotta have dry sound so you can yeah. have a good recording. Absolutely. That's where so we'll do the voiceovers, by the way. Guys. Cool. Just that's what I'm telling you now. So you I'm know, excited. The, you know the voice the voiceovers. You know where we do the voiceovers. Yeah. Yeah. You know yeah. for yeah. the overdubs. The after, overdubs. Yeah, yeah. You know when you're think, when you're yeah. done upstairs and there's. Uh, Nothing left to cook, and it's just you guys and me in the basement (laughs) (laughs) doing voiceovers. (laughs) Soundproofed. Love it. (laughs) Does it make you excited? You can't Uh, see underneath the table. (laughs) The table just moved. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, guys. Jonathan, he's going gay. <laughs> we like you so much. Thank you so much for sitting on our show again. Yeah, that was. Awesome. Thank you for appearing in our pod show. Um, we'll send you the script as soon as he's done rewriting it, and then you can, you know, write well, it and, when it's, and when it's done, if I don't like it, we'll yeah. just go to the basement. Okay, <laughs> sounds good. Oh, uh, no pressure, no pressure. No pressure. So, uh, so I have some tools and stuff like power tools down there. So. Oh yeah, oh, for for the okay. voiceovers for the yeah. Voiceovers. Well, you know, in case we need to do some splicing. <laughs> <laughs> oh oh man. man! Thanks, Jonathan. Hey, Love Jonathan. you guys, long time. Big shout out to Alamo Draft House for hosting such a wonderful party. Until next year, bye. Visit our website, realnerdspodcast.com. You can tweet us at real underscore nerds. You can email us even, realnerds at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook. Hey, stream us on Stitcher. You want to call us? 720-6Nerds5. And download us on iTunes. Just search Real Nerds. Thank you, Joe Kempter, for the wonderful voiceover. And also, Spark Mandrill, for the wonderful late-night jazz-smooth sounds of movies. You can find them on SoundCloud. This has been a Nebulous Visions production.